Welcome to Multilingual Montessori, a podcast where we discuss multilingualism, multiculturalism, and raising children from a Montessori perspective. I'm Gabrielle Kutkov, an AMI Montessori guide and TESOL instructor with a master's in child studies, and I'm the founder of Multilingual Montessori. You can find me on Instagram at multilingual.montessori and at multilingualmontessori.org. On this episode, I'm doing something a little different. Have you ever wondered about what virtual Montessori school is like? Not Montessori schools that temporarily held virtual classes during the pandemic, but an academic program designed to be a fully remote Montessori school? Maybe you've never even heard of such a thing. Well, in June of 2022, I graduated from Linköping University in Sweden with a master's degree in child studies. And for my final thesis, I conducted a qualitative study about teachers' experiences and their impressions of their students' experiences in a virtual Montessori program that started at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. My good friend and former coworker Claudia Lundahl, an AMI 0-3 trained Montessorian, joined me back on the podcast to interview me about the master's program and the contents of my thesis research. You might remember Claudia from episode 15, where I interviewed her, and episode 20, where she interviewed me about starting multilingual Montessori. In this episode, we chat all about virtual learning both in the context of my master's program and my research on virtual Montessori preschool, what my biggest takeaways were from interviewing virtual Montessori teachers, and what the future of virtual Montessori school might be. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Thanks for having me back on the podcast, Gabrielle. I'm so Thanks excited to be here. Thanks for being back on the podcast. I'm really looking forward to this conversation and um, hearing more about you as a guest on your podcast. This is really exciting. I know. It was fun when we did the last episode with me as a guest. That was a while ago. So the tables are turned. We'll see how it goes. (laughs) (laughs) I feel so powerful. Um, So today we're talking about your master's program and your thesis and some of the aspects of that that are related to um multilingual Montessori yeah 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 thanks for thanks for being up for interviewing me of course my pleasure um so I read a little bit I mean just because I know you and you're my friend I (laughs) know about um your master's program a little bit but I'm excited to find out more so um, can you sort of tell me to start a little bit about, um, the program that you did and it was in Sweden, which is very cool. And, um, about your decision to enroll in this program and study, um, the program that you ended up studying. Yeah. So the program was a master's of science in child studies. And to be honest, I underestimated the science part of that um, when I, when I first enrolled. Uh, So, you know, it was a lot of like research and, you know, talking about qualitative versus quantitative studies and doing a literature review. And that was all new to me coming from a liberal arts background. I didn't really do that 
um, wow. so scientifically in undergrad. Um, but I wanted to do a master's degree because I have Montessori certification. I have my AMI three to six diploma, which anybody who has done an AMI diploma knows that that is the work of a master's degree. But mm-hmm. outside of the Montessori world, it isn't really recognized and nobody's familiar with it outside of Montessori. And, um, and I also just wanted to, I, I love school. So I wanted to kind of keep learning and, and find a program that would complement um, Montessori, but not necessarily be child development, because I felt like I knew a lot of that already from my previous studies. So this program, um, you were actually the one who told me about this program. So thank you. Um, (laughs) this program, seemed like a great fit because, well, first of all, I, as I've talked about before on this podcast, I got Italian citizenship five years ago through my mom's side of the family. And, um, the tuition was free for EU students, um, because it's from a Swedish university. So that made it possible. (laughs) That was amazing. Um, and even though it was from a Swedish university, it was mostly online or distance education program. And it's not like, um, online universities here where it's all online. It's a, you know, brick and mortar university in a town called Linköping in Sweden, but they have, I think five to seven master's degrees that are almost entirely online. And this just happened to be one of them. Um, and I applied So even before the pandemic, it was online and I applied in January, 2020, and it started in um, August, 2020. So of course, when I applied, I didn't realize that everything would be online in later in 2020, but it ended up working out really well that it was a distance program and I didn't have to be in Sweden or in Europe. Um, The program was designed so that you go to campus five times in two years. You can do it as a one-year or a two-year master's. I chose to do the two years. So we were supposed to go to campus, I think for four on-campus sessions and then a final presentation, um, you know, in person and all of those were moved to Zoom. So we never, you know, got to go as a cohort to Sweden, which was super disappointing. I mean, it made it convenient that it could be done on Zoom. Of course, I did have some three or 4 a.m. Zoom meetings sometimes. Um, From the time zone. Yeah, with the times that I was on the East Coast. And um, there were a couple times where I had to be there at 9 a.m. Sweden time. And how much is it? Yeah, the difference. Wow. Oh my God. Six hours. (laughs) That's challenging. (laughs) So that was rough. Um, And then my first year I wrote my thesis. We we had to do our thesis uh, with a partner our first year. And, um, you know, my partner was wonderful, but she was in Sweden. So we just like left a lot of WhatsApp voice notes for each other. (laughs) Yeah. Um, We made it work. But we did ultimately get to go to Sweden for graduation, which they had a um, graduation ceremony for all of the international master's programs. So basically every program that was taught in English, and there was more than 100, and um, most of those students had been on campus. There were only a couple programs that were online, but that was really cool. Uh, I got to go with my parents last summer and it was really special because I was like, wow, it's a real place. <laughs> I've been doing this online for two years. Yeah. Um, so that was really great. It was a nice culmination 
only a couple people from our program went, but it was really special to meet in person and, and see everyone. Do you feel like you got the opportunity to sort of build relationships with the other people in your cohort? Or did you really feel that distance because you weren't able to be on campus at all? Like, how was that? I mean, we're going to talk about virtual learning because that's kind of like the crux of of your um, thesis work in general, but you really experienced that while you were, you know, doing the actual program. So how did that feel? Did you feel like you knew these people or were they just kind of like faces that you recognized? That's a great question. Um, I I did, I was able to connect with a couple people that I feel like are still friends, but for the most part, it was like they were just people on a screen. And, and also because, you know, it's not like in the US where you really have to like be on track with all your classes. Like you could take, retake a class three times. Like you could do the program at a slower speed. So sometimes people would kind of come in and out or they'd be there for one class and not there for another class. Um, Or if you never worked with a person in a group, you would know them or recognize them from all your classes, but never have had an interaction with them. Um, So it definitely was, I don't feel like there was as much networking, um, as maybe in an in-person program, I did, you know, there was like a WhatsApp group when we were all doing classes and, you know, worrying about our final papers and stuff. So we did support each other in that way, but much more disconnected. I think that people who, I mean, I was working full-time at the same time, but also it was the, you know, the middle of the pandemic. So I, not a lot else going on, but I think for people who weren't very good at like, you know, staying on, forcing the self to stay on a schedule. And like, there was nobody who was going to do that for you. So um, for better or worse, you could kind of do your own schedule and do the classes at a slower pace, but then it would take longer. So I think that, yeah, you had to be very self-motivated and kind of keep yourself on task. Um, yeah. It's such a surreal experience. I And so because it was always a distance program, it wasn't just something that happened as a result of COVID. It had always been designed that way. I imagine there were a lot of people from international backgrounds doing the, or just living internationally rather, um, mm-hmm. who were joining this program. Was that sort of like the experience? Were there people from other parts of the world doing this or was it mostly like people within Europe? It was mostly people within Europe and there were people who were from other countries, but were living in Europe. I think I may have been the only person that I knew of not living in Europe. Um, There were a couple of, oh, actually that's not true. There was one woman who is, I believe, Polish who was living in Chicago. Um, I think we were the only two that I knew of who weren't in Europe. There were um, some people from Asia who lived in Europe. I think with the time zone, um, right? You would people wouldn't, you know, it would be really hard as it was hard for me. But also more than that, I don't think a lot of, I don't think anybody that I knew of was paying for it. You know, either you right. have European citizenship or you have European residency, and either way, the tuition is free. So, right. um, yeah, I think that was the main reason that it was mostly Europeans. But you're right. In another program, that is like 
you know, based from a university and then happened to go online, maybe people could have met up in person, but we couldn't even do that. So that was really why it was, I wanted to go to the graduation in person. And I got to meet at least like three people who were in my program and like a couple of the professors. So, um, and I realized I didn't even talk about really what the program was. I said what it wasn't, it wasn't child development. Um, but child studies is kind of hard to describe. I describe it a bit like women's studies um, or gender studies or African-American studies where it looks at, at children as a historically disadvantaged group and mm -hmm. looks at their um, you know, rights as people in all different areas. So the first year it was a lot of classes about the construct of childhood. So the history of children and childhood, anthropology, sociology. And then we looked, the second year we looked at, um, we went a little deeper into different areas like parents, children, and family life, children and healthcare, um, migrants and, you know, transnational childhoods. So that was very interesting. It was um, and of course, education was one of them as well. Um, so it wasn't looking at child development um, as much as the idea of children in childhood and looking at children as full people now rather than, so actually let me back up and say the interesting thing about looking at children as a disadvantaged group is that everybody was once a child. Yeah. Not everybody is a woman or you know, any of these other historically disadvantaged groups that we think of, but everybody was once a child. And yet children don't have a lot of rights and autonomy in many different areas. So um, that's a very interesting aspect, I think. And often people think about children's rights and what they need and what they deserve, thinking of them as the people they will be as adults, so um, we talked a lot about beings versus becomings. So a becoming is looking at the child as how will this help them to become an adult or when they are an adult, which is important, but it's also important to look at them as beings. What do they need now? How can we support them now? So wow. yeah, it's kind of the central crux of child studies. I could see why you were interested in that. I mean, coming from, I mean, just because it's, very interesting to begin with, but also coming from a Montessori background and having gone through the AMI training, these are definitely things that I remember we touched upon when I did my zero to three training, my assistance to infancy. Um, you know, that was sort of like a tenant of Maria Montessori's whole philosophy is, you know, respecting the child and um, looking at the child as a whole person. Did any was there any aspect of the course that touched on Montessori or um, was anyone in your course familiar with Montessori or were you kind of like the, no, the sole Montessori voice? I was kind <laughs> of the sole Montessori voice. I was a bit of an island. Um, yeah. yeah. And even um, like I remember when I was writing my thesis, I did incorporate um like a little history of kind of mon like Montessori 101 into it, but I kept referring to like the children's house and my thesis advisor just like didn't get it that that was an age group, you know? I think she thought it was like a specific school, <laughs> even though oh. I thought I had accurately described it. So things like that, um, 
yeah not known the phraseology wasn't yeah part of their yeah I guess I'm yeah exactly I I I kind of went into it thinking that um you know the Scandinavian countries a lot of their early childhood education is very similar to Montessori there's a lot of overlap I'm sure inspired maybe indirectly by Montessori but I was a little surprised at how unfamiliar some people were I guess also because like my one Swedish friend before going into this program had gone to a Montessori school so I was like oh yeah it's like people yeah. know it <laughs> you know <laughs> <laughs> oh that's funny that's interesting I, I kind of had a similar experience in in France where a lot of the schools seemed to me to be really um like parallel with Montessori in a lot of ways like emphasis on like sensorial work and the outdoors and like a very like well-rounded curriculum that's like kind of you know child-led in a way like following the child but it wasn't called Montessori and and so I, I guess that's kind of like I mean of course there are Montessori schools that do exist but it's not maybe as common as we would think it would be that's so interesting um though about your program so so what um what did you learn what was the most exciting part of your research and and the major takeaways from from doing this program oh the major takeaways from doing this program um just it honestly it was just really interesting to learn about this field um because I you know see things like okay like one recent example which would have been so cool to be in a class and talk about this like at the same time um have you heard about the group of teenagers in montana who is suing the state of montana for climate change um no. issues yeah so i was just listening to podcasts about that last week they're suing the state of montana with an environmental lawyer uh who was being interviewed on this podcast that i was listening to because of i mean i can't remember exactly what it is but basically the premise of the lawsuit was that the state of montana was I don't know if if it's that they were actively doing things to increase climate change or not doing things to prevent climate change and these and they're all minors they're like teenagers um they're suing them because they you know it's like goes against their human rights to wow. um like fresh air and a good environment and the government knows about all of these things and they're not doing anything so that is something that like we would have talked a lot about in child studies like the rights of children to advocate for themselves and for other people to advocate for them. So it's, I think that the most interesting takeaway, because I don't think that I'm going to go into child studies research. I don't think I'm going to become child studies professor, but now I see these things and I kind of look at them with new eyes and like, I see them all around me now, all of these ways that people are advocating for children and children are advocating for themselves and ways in which children, you know, don't have a lot of rights. Like these teenagers can't vote for the lawmakers, you know, but they're making decisions that will affect them more than anyone else because wow. they're the ones who are in theory going to outlive us. Right. <laughs> so yeah, it, that part was really interesting. So I don't know if that is like something that I learned, but that's kind of my takeaway and what stays with me like a year later having finished it and not really thought about these issues on a daily basis anymore, if that makes sense. 
No, that definitely makes sense. That's really interesting um, and inspiring. It's true that, you know, the youngest people in the world right now are the ones who have to deal with the effects of the legislation that relates to what their world will look like. And it's wild to think that we wouldn't listen to them. Like, yeah, <laughs> you know, I think, um, you know, the term like minor has been used sometimes in an almost like derogatory sense, like, mm-hmm. oh, they're a minor, like they don't have agency. Um, and in some realms, that's absolutely true. Like <laughs> the need to protect them and advocate for them is obviously really necessary, but it's also important to listen to people. So that's a great takeaway. Yeah. Especially, and, and even just thinking about very, very little children um, and how they're often kind of like, in a less serious sense, kind of carried from places and pulled along mm-hmm. and, you know, um, like as an example in Montessori, you know, how we take a child's hand, we'd never like pull them by the wrist. It's amazing how often you see adults like pulling children (laughs) from places they don't want to be. And so I think about that a little bit too, like just respecting them and and listening to them, even when they're very, very, very little is so important. So yeah. Another thing that I remember from one class about uh, like children in labor that I thought was interesting is that, you know, we have a lot of labor laws now that protect children from having to work, which is great because in the past children were abused as laborers. But what about the rights for children to work? So then there's, you know, we read some articles about like adolescents who wanted to work or who were not allowed to work. And so there's not always like a clear cut answer. Like, of course, we don't want children being exploited. And when I say children, I mean, like up to 18 or whatever the legal age of maturity is. And so, and that's another issue. Like, what is the legal age of maturity? Is like a 17 year old that different from an 18 year old in many different um, legal contexts? Where do you draw that line? And um, so like advocating or allowing to children to advocate for themselves, whether it's the right to go to school and not work, or whether it's the right to work and support themselves or support their families or be emancipated from their family. So there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of gray area. It's really interesting. That is interesting. I I, I mean, it's something I haven't thought too much about, but um, thinking about sort of being from America and now living in the UK, um, where I currently live, there are a few differences that have come to my mind, like the legal age for drinking is one that um, is different here from in America. So it's caused me to think about, you know, things like that, like, you know, are of the are all of these sort of rules and limits that we place on children and adolescents and teenagers, like, where do they come from? Are they arbitrary? Are they? Um, is there like a societal reason? So yeah, that is, that is really interesting. Yeah. It's cool to think about all this stuff. I mean, yeah, as a teacher and just like as a person in the world. So that sounds like a great experience. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was really great to kind of, um, I, I think I, what I enjoyed the most was that it challenged me to think of, of different, you know, things that I, that didn't come up in say Montessori training, like different, um, conflicts and different issues and 
kind of zoom out because a lot of what we do in Montessori is the day to day and the routines and, you know, um, toileting and handwriting and all of those like very, and like grace and courtesy, all of those very, um, small pieces that add up, but then to be able to zoom out and look at like big issues surrounding children and childhood was a totally different perspective that I hadn't done in a long time. Um, so yeah, that maybe like since the beginning of Montessori training, and then you, you know, you start broad, but then you go really deep into the fine details and that's kind of where you stay in some aspects. So it was, it was cool to zoom out and look at things from a very broad perspective. So you said that you, the first year you collaborated on your thesis with someone in your group. Can you tell me a little bit about what you guys worked on for that project? Yeah. So we, I'm trying to remember how we got the idea for this. I think so the, our thesis talked about advertisements, toy advertisements to children in the U.S. and Sweden and how those differed and kind of what messages they were conveying about children and childhood and what values. Um, and I, I, I'm blanking on how I first thought of this. I think it was from a book. Oh, okay. I remember. It was... Um, Linda Akerson McGurk, who was a guest on my podcast uh, a couple months ago, she wrote, um, there's no such thing as bad weather. I then interviewed her about her second book, um, but she was writing, she's um, Swedish and she lived in the US for a while. In her first book, she was talking about how her children um, were preschoolers in the US and how the like approach to preschool and everything was so different in the US than Sweden. And so that gave me the idea of looking at advertisements um, for toys and kind of what that, what messages that said about children and childhood. However, we ran into the issue that Sweden has restrictions against advertising to children, which is kind oh. of amazing. So you actually really can't advertise to children. You can advertise to parents, but we were able to find um, like we focus, ended up focusing on Fisher Price. And so we were able to find American and Swedish Fisher Price ads and um, kind of like the values that it conveyed and put forth about children and childhood. And I mean, I haven't looked at this in two years. I think I finished writing it and never looked at it again, but I'm trying to remember what <laughs> what we found. I mean, in general, it was mostly what we expected. Like the American commercials were all about like um, both excitement and like drama. Also, yeah. Yes, yes. A lot of stimuli, but also about like concrete learning objectives. Like oh, they'll learn the colors. They'll learn yeah. the shapes. Like an academic perspective. Yes. Yes. And the Swedish ones were more like relationships. There's a lot of like parents and children together in the commercials. And um, oh. like, then there was one that was like in a forest and it was like free, happy childhood kind of. Um, yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. It's not so much about like the thing that like lights up, flashes, sings, and like recites the ABCs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wow. That's interesting. 
And then from that, we kind of um, extrapolated what we felt were the values and like what it said the priorities were about children and childhood. That was kind of like our thesis statement. Wow. That's yeah. so interesting. I, I, I love this. I, I remember reading um, something about how in toy stores or like your run of the mill, like drugstore that sells things for kids, like the things that were most appealing for children, they put at like shelf height for the child, like not even for the parent so that the children would be like walking the aisles and like see things that they wanted. So whether it was like toys or like a candy cereal or something that was like really appealing it was like catching their eye and almost like probably causing the adult and the child to like get into this battle about like we can't have this you know you're just putting things in the cart um so that's really interesting because I I guess like marketing companies probably know that more often than not the child's going to win out yeah (laughs) Um, so that's really fascinating so was your partner on this um, project were they from Sweden I don't remember if you said they were yes Swedish. yeah she was from Sweden so she was kind of in charge of finding and translating <laughs> the Swedish commercials um, did you find that people like from Sweden had like preconceptions about American like aspects of early childhood or did they kind of not as much maybe a little bit she had um she had spent a little bit of time in Hawaii. So she wasn't like totally unfamiliar with, you know, American culture, but um, like from, from experiencing it, but I don't remember if she worked with children when she was there, but yeah, I mean, she was the one who was like, oh yeah, like we actually don't have a lot of ads for kids. Cause you're not a lot, like you don't like watching Saturday morning cartoons or whatever. Like you don't see commercials. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> Yeah, that is so interesting. Even that not advertising to children is like a child's right to not be marketed to, you know? Yeah. Um, So even thinking about that, I mean, we just like accept this as normal in the US, you know? Um, When you think about it, like, yeah, a six-year-old doesn't need, I mean, I remember being a child. Maybe I don't remember this as much as my mom will tell this story. So it's one of those things I can't remember. I don't know what's my memory and what's my mom retelling the story. But I remember watching TV and seeing like a Red Lobster commercial and being like, oh, let's go there. Like every time. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, because Red Lobster. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you're at like your most impressionable age when all of this stuff is like being flung at you. And and Mm -hmm. companies definitely know that. It's almost like yeah, you're right as a child to like preserve your mental space is really compromised. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's kind of like preserving the, preserving them from consumerism as long as we can. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you get enough as an adult with everything, you know, you might as well just preserve that childhood instead of all the media that, that is thrust upon them. Um, When you said that your um, partner didn't you weren't sure if they they had worked with children did you find that many people in your program had a background of of working with children in some capacity or do you know what kind of um Mm. previous experience with children the people in your program had were they mostly teachers or um oh actually she did have a background working with children just not I don't think in the U.S. um most people 
That's a great question. There were a couple people who were teachers um, or had worked with children in some capacity, but I don't, for the most part, I don't think there were too many active teachers who were like teaching and doing the program at the same time. It's kind of like, um, it's like a mix of all these different areas. You could come at this from like a legal background or a teaching background or a human rights background. Like it touches on so many different areas. I'm sure there were lots of different um, people who had different career goals in mind. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's something that I think was missing from the program. Like I don't, I didn't really necessarily get a whole background on people unless I became friendly with them, you know, and had like one-on-one conversations, but it would have been nice to, I guess we would have had this in person. We would have met each other the first week of the program and gotten to know each other's backgrounds and goals and stuff. But that would have been nice to um, kind of know where people were coming from and where they were trying to go if they wanted to stay in academia, if they wanted to go into research or something else. Um, That kind of like, I guess for lack of a better word, networking was definitely missing for me. And, And that was, you know, part of the whole scrambling. Everybody was scrambling in 2020 to make everything online and they didn't know you know, and nobody wanted to spend more time on Zoom than they already were. So I don't think anybody wanted to do like happy hour on Zoom or whatever. Yeah, that got old really fast. Right? Yeah, it really did. So (laughs) (laughs) yeah, we should have to do a few like social things on Zoom, but uh, nobody wanted to spend any more time staring at a screen. Yeah, like over it. Um, Understandable. Um, cool. So, so that was your first year thesis. And then, so the program was a two-year master's of science. So for your second year, did you work independently or did you also work in a group for your thesis? I worked independently. You had the option to either work independently or work the group. There was, uh, two people who had worked together for their first year thesis and decided it was a good partnership and they did their thesis together the second year too, but most people did um, their own thing for their second year thesis. So what was your, your final project about? Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah. So I, um, I was really trying to decide whether I was doing something with multilingualism and language or Montessori. Um, and ultimately with the scope of what we had time to do and what we were allowed to do as master's students, we couldn't interview children. Well, not that you couldn't interview children, but it was a lot more complicated if you wanted Mm -hmm. to try to interview children. And also it was still kind of like the tail end of pandemic restrictions and everything. So that seemed difficult. Um, so doing research on a language related topic. I, I, at first I wanted to do something with like bilingualism and multilingualism and identity, but I wanted to talk to children if I were going to do that. Um, and it just felt like that was beyond the scope of what I was going to have time for and be allowed to do. Um, so then I decided to, do something about virtual Montessori school because while doing this program, I was teaching Montessori online, which, you know, 
sounds like quite the contradiction, <laughs> if you know anything about Montessori. And um, I did stop teaching full-time when I started the thesis, but like for a year and a half doing the master's, I was also teaching online at the same time. And so I was um, getting, at least in my corner of the internet, I was experiencing it, but I decided to talk to teachers who were doing Montessori online and um, get their, you know, hear their experiences and hear about whether they felt like it was working for the students in their class and what it kind of meant for children to have access to Montessori online, what was gained, what was lost, and um, just how they how they felt their experiences had been. So it was a qualitative study, which means that I was just interviewing people to get their, hear their testimony really more than anything else. And I wasn't like drawing data-based conclusions about, you know, from my interviews, but, um, but it was really interesting. So I spoke to eight teachers. I of course didn't use my own (laughs) experiences. Um, I spoke to eight teachers who taught in the early childhood. So toddler and children's house, basically. So my questions to them were mostly about how they implemented Montessori online, um, how they felt their students' experiences had been both academically, but also socially, because that's such a big part of, mm-hmm. you know, early childhood in general, and especially in Montessori settings. And then we talked about disadvantages and advantages they perceived for their students and also for themselves. Wow. Yeah, that's so interesting. Just even from a perspective of like information archiving, I'm just thinking about, you know, the fact that we all experienced COVID, which was this global catastrophe, obviously, but as we begin to study it in years to come, um, publications like your thesis are going to be so valuable just to like have testimony from people who went through it. Like, yeah, it's just great to have that as like a representation of like what was actually going on when in, in several years we're looking back on it and are like, what was that? You know, honestly, I, it's been almost a year and a half, I think, since I stopped teaching online and I'm like, I can't, believe that happened like I almost have forgotten it (laughs) like it's it's wild that we just like went so quickly into it and then so quickly out of it Mm -hmm. I think we were just all kind of eager to get back to in-person things but as I as well I'm sure we'll get into not everyone (laughs) (laughs) yeah yes I mean so everyone just kind of like mobilized to figure out what to do for virtual learning and it was sort of like I mean, you were doing it. Was it very like trial and error? Was there like, were there things that you did that you realized didn't work or were there like adaptations that you had to do as you like went through it? Like what was the experience of switching to virtual learning so rapidly without really a precedent for it? Like, how did that go? Yeah, I, I, so from my own experience, I describe it a bit like building the plane while we're flying it. Um, Mm -hmm it was just trying to 
make it work. And that's kind of what I asked the other teachers about in my interviews. Um, everybody, you know, the program mailed students materials. Everybody was kind of just leaning on their training and trying to take those principles and have those be what was behind what they were doing, but the execution couldn't be the same as it was in the classroom. So that was interesting hearing how different teachers did that. I mean, there was a lot of variety because it kind of just all happened at once. There wasn't um, a really set approach to doing Montessori online, at least at first. So I inter- I should back up and say I interviewed these teachers in March and April 2022, but they had all been teaching for a year to a year and a half online at that point. Okay. So most of their experiences were like the 2020 to 2021 school year, and then a little bit of the 2021 to 2022 school year. And of course, at the beginning in 2020, there was no, you know, handbook, but like how to do Montessori online. So some teachers, for example, and these classes were 90 minutes at the time. I think the structure may have changed since then, but at the time there were 90 minutes. So um, some teachers used that as kind of like a 90 minute group time. And then they invited parents to kind of continue the work cycle after that with their children at home and like suggested materials and activities that they could work on after that. Some teachers used the hour and a half as the work cycle and tried to have children doing individual things and kind of give individual lessons as you would in a Montessori classroom. It really ran the gamut as far as how people structured their classes and what they thought was best for their students and then kind of managing parent expectations and desires as well. Um, That was a really interesting thing that I, that came out of the interviews was how teachers felt about parents being basically a part of the classroom. So sometimes teachers felt it to be very stressful because parents were right there. And, you know, there's a lot of, um, pressure yeah a lot of pressure and kind of uh, parents can have a lot more opinions about very small things that are happening in the classroom but a lot of teachers also felt like it was a great opportunity for parent education so sometimes they would use it as either informal or even formal parent education like showing how to give a lesson um, modeling all the time how we talk to children in, you know, a calm voice and using positive phrasing and all of those things that, you know, you don't, you can talk about, but they're best demonstrated. So that was, I think, a surprising advantage for many people that they really felt like they bonded with the families because they were at home, everyone was at home, you know, seeing into each other's lives and, um, and the teachers could kind of educate parents and children at the same time almost like not quite like a parent child class as much as the parents were learning how to observe I uh, yeah I was going to that resonates like 
you know, being at work, you know, you and I worked at the same school and it wasn't uncommon for parents to request an observation day so they can come in and, and sit and, and watch the class. And, you know, they weren't participating. They were really just sitting. And I remember when I was just starting out teaching, it really freaked me out because I was like, oh, gosh, I'm going to be like under a microscope. It's going to be like this is the one day that there's going to be chaos. And um they would come in and it was it was always fine and even if afterwards I was self-conscious about some things that had happened I always felt like the parents were like like something would click after that like oh I realize why this is such and such a way or I can't wait to like have this at home or where can I buy this like something they'd seen or or liked about the class they were always for the most part, really enthusiastic. So I, I never considered that for virtual learning, but that would be a really positive takeaway. Yeah. Another positive takeaway, I think that a lot of people said was that um, children who didn't otherwise have geographic access to Montessori education had access. Of course, this was still limited by you know, affording private education and affording the digital technology required, you know, they had to have um, a laptop or an iPad that the child could use during the workday. Um, so not everyone has that, of course. And then childcare, like you had to, a, a lot of parents were doing work in the background, but you had to have some adult who was there at home, right. you know, watching the child. So of course, not accessible to everyone, but for many of the children, I think I heard this from a lot of teachers that their students wouldn't have had access to Montessori. And I think more importantly than that, the parents and families wouldn't have had access to Montessori. So it's not as much about like the teachers and what's happening in the classroom. It's that like the parents can learn about this and, and you know, find out more if they're interested. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was very interesting. Um, and then a lot of teachers said that their classes were more diverse than their, you know, in-person schools that they had worked at because you're not limited to geographic locations. So there were students of all backgrounds. I mean, I had a child in my class who lived in Abu Dhabi and he did like oh. an evening class in my morning class. Um, so, cool. so that was really awesome. I think he was the only international student I had, but there were other time zones that did have international students. Um, yeah, I mean, it, people were from all over. My West Coast class had people all over the West Coast, you know. It was yeah. it was really cool in that aspect. That is really cool. I, I was speaking with someone recently who um, the parents were both working from home and were really busy and couldn't do virtual school with their kids. So, um, grandma came to do virtual school with the kids and she just like loved it. She was so excited to be part of it, which like, you know, she was removed from that aspect previously, but the fact that she could do virtual school with them, I feel like was a really positive bonding experience for her with the grandkids. So there are definitely like these little like sweet things that that came as a result of it, even though I think she said like it was totally chaotic for the kids. Like they were hardly <laughs> like they were doing it, um, but they were really little at the time. And I think like being at home, there's a lot of distractions and you want to get up and wander away. But she was like totally hooked in. She was, yeah. <laughs> grandma was like, oh, I want to know what's going to happen with this, you know, science experiment or something. So oh, I love that. <laughs> Thank you.
screen time. So was that something you discussed with the teachers that you interviewed for your thesis, like the effect of having um, children in front of screens for a long time? Definitely. And, you know, there is research, which is, I think, in its early stages, but there's starting to be research come out that like not all screen time is equal, you know, Zoom and FaceTime is like the, I don't know, the better kind of screen time because it's interactive rather than like watching TV. So there is that. So we felt like being able to offer interact, and I shouldn't say we, um, because of course I did have this experience too, but my (laughs) research did not include myself. So from what I heard from the teachers, they did feel like being able to have conversations and offer interactive experiences, even on a screen, that aspect was okay. But I did hear that a lot of them felt that the screen interfered with the path towards concentration and what we say is normalization in Montessori. And that doesn't mean normal versus not normal, but it means like, um, how would you describe normalization? Like kind of your your mind and your body is integrated, you're like calm and you can concentrate and focus. Yeah, um, just being kind of centered. Like settled, centered, that's a good word, like centered and confident and focused, yeah. Yeah, and so the screen really interfered with that. I mean, even when, um, even when a child was working on something independently, the screen was there and you know, they were hearing the other children and often getting distracted. And so that would like pull a child out of concentration or not even really ever let them enter into concentration, even when they were working on something independently that they had freely chosen that they were, you know, engaged in. So I think that was the biggest, um, the biggest issue that a lot of teachers had with screens. Um, And then there wasn't a lot of opportunity for autonomous socialization. Like there weren't really child-led peer interactions the way there are in a classroom. Um, It was all, even when it was like, you know, maybe free conversation time, it was still the teacher moderating, um, especially because if you all talk at the same time on zoom, the microphone doesn't pick up anybody's voice. So even that, like, um, mm-hmm. you know, some teachers were like very against the mute button and didn't ever mute. And then some teachers taught children how to mute and unmute themselves because it was just like, you, you just couldn't hear each other if everyone was unmuted. Yeah. So like you had to be muted and, you know, of course, some people felt like, on a, on a, um, like moral ground, you didn't want to mute children, but just like the technology didn't always support it being unmuted. So things like that, like there weren't really as many opportunities for socialization and agency and independence in the way that there are in the classroom. So most, I think most teachers felt academically, they were able to support their students you know, children had materials at home. They were able to teach parents how to give lessons. They gave lessons during class time, but all of those like soft skills that we teach in Montessori, like socialization and grace and courtesy and, you know, independence, um, and just, just social interactions. Those were really limited by the online environment. Mm 
Yeah, I could I can imagine that would be really tough, especially without the spontaneous aspect of that occurring. It would be really hard to like, yeah, support those kind of interactions. So we're because I I hadn't been teaching when COVID happened and when COVID started, um, I know a lot of children went home and, and did like homeschool environments, but I'm, I'm trying to imagine what it would actually look like to have a Montessori school, a Montessori virtual school. So is it kind of like a guide giving presentations to the children, just modeling? And then is there like a, a time that like the children all do it? Like, what does it actually look like? I can't really envision it. Yeah. So again, there was not anything that was kind of written out, but most teachers did structure their class like that. Like they would, I mean, okay, first of all, there were no mixed age groups in this program there because I don't know, I guess they determined that that was too challenging, but teachers usually had like a year to a year and a half age range. Mm -hmm. So they would give lessons. Some teachers decided to do lessons for the whole group. Some would do small groups and the other children would be watching, but the lesson would be for certain children and some would do individual lessons while other children, you know, did their own thing or watched. Um, Some teachers asked parents to like set up a classroom basically with things on the shelf that children could access. Um, I think there was variation in how much the individual teachers asked of the parents as far as their setup, um, you know, because not everyone was able to set up a Montessori classroom at home. But I think the parents that wanted to, the teachers were there to support, you know, that and and teach them how to set that up. Um, yeah, I mean, there was more like more, just more full group activities than you ever would have in a classroom. Yeah. Like stories um, and circle and, and mm-hmm. music, stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. Um, and a lot of that was, I think, because that was the children's opportunity for peer interaction that day, yeah. you know? Um, and when you were talking about schools that went virtual, what's interesting about the younger age groups was that many of these children had never been to school before because they were two or three or four or at the oldest, they were five when they were starting this program in 2020. Um, There was an elementary program, but that wasn't, that was like beyond the scope of my research. Um, So most of these children had not been to school before. Some had maybe started children's house and then, um, or started in a preschool and then their parents enrolled them in virtual school, but I would say more than half, if I had to estimate, had never been to school before. So this was their first experience with school. And that was just, that was interesting, you know? Um, Those group activities are so important when a child's just starting school. It's like how they sort of create their safe space, I think, you know, yeah, like familiar they, things. Right. How they just like get into the routine, they learn about the expectations of the environment. They learn about what the day-to-day is and when it's the same and predictable, that gives them, you know, a sense of safety and reassurance. So yeah, I think those are important. So did you feel like the teachers that you interviewed um, had like a positive um, 
sort of, do you feel like they felt it was positive mostly or, or mixed or was it kind of like time will tell kind of thing? Yeah. I think a lot of them did find it positive and a lot, honestly, a lot of them, I think enjoyed it or at the very least were grateful to have the opportunity to work from home, but still be teaching during the pandemic. Um, And I also should have said before, one thing that I was very aware of, and the teachers I interviewed were also very aware of, is that both of these groups were self-selecting. Like the teachers chose to choose online, to teach online, and the families chose to do virtual Mm -hmm. school. So it wasn't, it was different from a school that had gone virtual and was implementing virtual education because of a lockdown restriction. These, this was designed as a virtual program. So everyone was seeking out virtual school. Now, of course, whether they liked it or how long they stayed, you know, that varied widely, but everyone kind of knew what they were getting into and was seeking that out. So I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind as well, that I don't think there were any teachers or families who were wildly dissatisfied with it because that's what they were seeking out. Um, And so I think the general sentiment from most teachers was that they felt that it was a really great option during this time where many of these children wouldn't have otherwise had any peer interactions. They wouldn't have had, their parents wouldn't have been able to do like academic work with them um, until they went back to in-person school or for the first time to in-person school. So a lot of them felt like it like they really did their best and it was going pretty well. But when I asked them if they felt that it was an effective replacement or substitute or alternative to in-person school, everybody said no. Mm. So I thought that was really interesting because they felt like it was great. <laughs> but then when I for asked what them it, was. it was, yeah, yeah for what it was, um, right. when, when asked if it was Okay, instead of or as an alternative, most of them felt like it was not. Mm, um, that's interesting. Yeah, both for you know academic experiences, but I think more than anything, socio emotional development um, that you just even like for me in in this master's program, like we were talking about. I mean, academically, I was like able to really get into it and get a lot out of it, but socially networking connections. I mean, that was really lacking which is nobody's fault. It just like was not really possible in the same way. Um, So I think that I, I, I think the same thing as was reflected in this. And um, the other thing is that it's so new that I guess this summer would be in theory, the first full cycle of children who began school, virtual school in 2020 and are finishing like, at a children's house age, primary age, then finishing their full cycle and being ready for elementary. So I don't honestly know if there are any children that have done that, say, full year cycle from three to six, but it would be really interesting to research their academic and socio-emotional readiness um, for entering both in person and I guess a, a virtual environment. But entering a type of in-person Montessori or traditional elementary school after a full three-year cycle in a virtual 
children's house program. I think that would be really interesting um, to explore because for the children who were there, and now this is just my personal opinion, I think for the children who were there for a year or two, it was great, but I do wonder what um, it would be long-term. And of course, over the last three years, I'm sure the practices have been refined in 2020. Right. It was really just like scrambling. Yeah. Um, now there are probably curric- like even curriculums written for doing this. Yeah, but maybe. Back then, maybe not as much. Yeah. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. Yeah, just thinking about like kids going into other areas of education who who had that experience learning virtually like what is their experience socially going to be so much different or was it an adequate replacement like it's it's better than nothing but it's not a perfect substitute so it'll be interesting to see what happens and I'm sure that also varies with children who are doing like swimming classes in person and like all of these other lessons where you know, or activities where they're interacting with children. Like it doesn't have to be school, but I think um, school is where that generally happens. I asked teachers what they thought, you know, just for fun, what they thought Maria Montessori would have thought of virtual school. And I have to say like the answer surprised me and in a like really beautiful way, a lot of people said that they thought that, you know, for for as much as there is like an anti-screen movement, understandably, um, a lot of people felt that Maria Montessori was like on the cutting edge of educational research and technology. She was a scientist and she was very forward thinking. Um, a lot of people thought that she would be in favor of supporting children however they need it. So we by a lot of teachers said that by doing virtual school, we're meeting the challenges of the present moment. We're meeting the children where they are. We're offering them what we can for them to meet their needs in this moment. And um, and a lot of people felt she would have a flexible approach to it, which I think is interesting because the Montessori powers that be now are not necessarily known for being flexible (laughs) and um, adaptive. But I think that um, people felt strongly that Montessori would have been forward thinking and open to meeting the needs of the children um, where they were and incorporating technology into their daily lives because it's in our daily lives as adults. So Um, you know, it can be a resource for children as well. That is such an interesting thing to think about. Um, You know, I think I definitely agree with that, like meeting the challenges of the present day is above all. And I think, you know, I, I, I'm on board with that sentiment to think that she would have had an appreciation for that. Like this is a wildly unprecedented experience and we're just doing the best we can and adapting this centuries old pedagogy to fit something that's so unique and so current and so bizarre. Um, I think, you know, there would have definitely been an appreciation for that. But on the other hand, or, or not even on the other hand, like to go a step further and to just consider the fact that people are working remotely and as adults are spending a lot of their time on screen 
interfacing with people in different time zones and different geographic locations. Um, and virtual learning is essentially allowing us to do that. It's almost like, like I wonder if these children will be even more prepared for scenarios like this that are going to be prevalent in the in the coming you know years as technology advances and we spend more and more of our time behind computer screens like are we actually doing them a favor by introducing this early like yeah, yeah. it's interesting it is going to be really interesting so one aspect of this thesis that i you know had to include was a literature review and it was interesting because there were three relevant areas of research but there weren't any, there wasn't at the time any research done on virtual Montessori programs. So I'm interested to see whether anything comes out of that specific niche area. So the three areas of research were the use of technology in Montessori classrooms, in-person Montessori classes that moved online temporarily during the pandemic. So by the time I was doing research in you know, spring 2022, there were already some studies about Montessori classes that moved online only a couple. And then there was a ton of research about virtual schools that were not Montessori schools, even that preceded the pandemic, because we didn't really think about virtual school, at least I didn't before COVID, but there were virtual schools and there will be virtual schools. Um, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of families who either have an immun immunocompromised family member or just like don't want to be tied down to a location, want to be kind of global nomads. Um, so there's a, a lot of reasons why people might stick with virtual education. But um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if any more research comes out of virtual Montessori programs and if other similar programs pop up or if people decide that it really is incongruous with Montessori. Yeah, that will be really interesting to see. It's almost like it's very hands-on, but aspects of it, I think, lend itself really well to virtual learning. So, like, it's not completely incompatible, I feel. Um, so, yeah, it'll be interesting to see, definitely. Yeah, and I just, I hope that, um, I hope that more research comes out of this area. I mean, I don't think I'll be doing it, but it'll be, I think, really important to study virtual school and virtual Montessori school with an open mind. Um, and yeah, and see how we can adapt it, because I do think that there's a, a market for it and a population that wants it and needs it. And so probably most people will continue to want in-person school, but um, there's many people who many families and many teachers who want to keep doing virtual school. And so I hope that um, there's a way to, there will continue to be people who want to refine it and make it better and um, incorporate Montessori into virtual school because I don't think virtual school is going anywhere. So I hope that we can kind of make a, a Montessori virtual school that, or virtual curriculum that lasts because I think that could be really wonderful. Yeah, I definitely think there's an opportunity there for it. Um, you know, especially from an administration perspective, thinking about all the things that go along with like having a physical school, like 
insurance and rent and all of these other sort of like administrative things that don't exist with a virtual school, it almost, yeah, seems like an opportunity in a couple of different realms, like for students and parents who need this and also for people that want to give Montessori to populations that are interested in, in, in doing it and having it without like tying themselves to a brick and mortar um, building or situation. So yeah, it's really interesting to think about. On one hand, I'm like, oh, the world is changing so much. It's scary to think about like Montessori being virtual, but it is kind of exciting in a way, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And I don't think that there's I don't think in-person Montessori school is going anywhere. Of course, we know that in-person interactions are so important, um, but it'll be interesting to see how this grows and changes and adapts. I want to read just a quote that I put towards the end of the thesis um, from one of the teachers that I interviewed. And I have quotes sprinkled throughout, which was my favorite part of writing this, like picking what, who to quote and what to, where to put it. You know, I didn't <laughs> identify anyone, but I did include quotes from all of the teachers. Um, so this teacher felt strongly that, um, you know, virtual Montessori school was another way, yet another way that teachers could adapt the Montessori method to meet the changing needs of children. Like we discussed before, rather than, and she felt like rather than being a prescriptive methodology that Montessori is dynamic and that it can be, could be adapted to a virtual format um, in order to serve the needs of this group of children. So I wanted to read this quote. So she said, so here is a new group of children. This group of children has never existed before. No group of children has lived through a pandemic quite like this in the same way in the same era. So I think that Montessori would support a practice that keeps children at the center, right? So rather than say, we teach Montessori and we can come into your house through a computer and we can offer you this, and here we come to kind of project Montessori onto people. Instead, I think of it more as receiving, like who's here, who's arrived, and what do you need exactly? And then how can I serve you? And can these materials do the same work that they do in the classroom? So I think that in that spirit of science and observation and discovery and service, I think that Montessori would support virtual school. I'm sure that she would look down her nose or laugh at a lot of the things that I'm trying, but I'm learning as I go. I'm doing my best. That's really wonderful. Yeah, I love, I love that. that quote. What a great sentiment. Yeah. That's really um, special. Yeah, so I think that was like my main takeaway that, you know, it certainly isn't perfect, and but nothing is, and this was a way that we could meet the needs of the children that were going through this event that no one had gone through in our generation in this way. So. And give yeah. them a degree of, of familiarity in their day-to-day -day when so much of life had been upheaved. I'm sure having them sign in and see their teacher and see their peers, even if it was only on screen, provided a small amount of comfort in a time that was so vastly unusual. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think so. I hope so. So yeah, it was, it was interesting to look at this from a research perspective um, and to kind of, kind of 
parse out like the the real message um yeah I mean I don't know I I probably would have written it entirely differently if I could go back but it's it's one of those things that it just there was like the time limit on it and then it had to be done when it was done which I think is probably a good thing because <laughs> yeah. I could have kept editing it forever but um but yeah now it lives online so I'll, you know I'll link to it and people can read it if they want but yeah, it was it was a nice also, you know, just selfishly, it was a nice way for me to sort of synthesize and process what my experience had been, even though I wasn't using my experiences and I was interviewing other people, um, not doing, you know, not being in the virtual classroom anymore and then writing this and researching about it was a really nice way for me to kind of process everything that I had learned and experienced. Yeah, absolutely. I think people who are passionate about things always have that feeling like, oh, if I could go back, I would add this or I would change this or I would do this. It's like one of those things that's just symptomatic of being passionate about a subject. You're always like thinking about it. So I think that's really natural, but it's it's very exciting and and um, I'll definitely read it and link to it. So oh, very cool. Well, thanks so much for interviewing me about it and asking amazing questions. Um, yeah, it's it's fun to revisit. I did, um, I presented at the AMS, American Montessori Society Conference in March. They have um, what's called a research poster session. So I made a gigantic poster, like three feet by four feet uh, with all the like synthesized information, basically pared down information about my thesis and then stood next to the poster for a couple hours and people came around and asked me questions about it and that was really cool it was a it was a nice so way great. to revisit it yeah yeah How so this cool. was another great way to revisit it wow I wish I had been to that one it seemed like an amazing time very cool I think you know this is an area that people are going to be very interested in reading about in the coming years especially people who did the research very cool, Gabrielle. Thank you for um, telling us all about this. It's really, really interesting. Oh, thanks for interviewing me, Claudia. Always good to talk. Yes, always. I will be back whenever you need me. <laughs> <laughs> thanks again to Claudia for coming on the podcast to interview me yet again and for asking such insightful questions. If you'd like to read my full thesis, you can download it at the link in the episode description, and you can also view a PDF of the research poster that I presented at the American Montessori Society's 2023 conference. If you have any thoughts about the episode or about virtual Montessori school, I would love to hear from you. I hope these critical conversations around the future of education continue in lots of different forms, and I would love to continue the conversation with you, especially if you had an experience with virtual Montessori education during the pandemic, whether as a parent, a teacher, or an administrator. If you want to hear more from Claudia, take a listen to episode 15, where I interviewed Claudia about her Montessori journey, and episode 20, where Claudia interviewed me about how I decided to start Multilingual Montessori and this podcast. You can also find Claudia on her website, claudianlundahl.com, and on Instagram at Claude Lundahl. You can find me on Instagram at multilingual.montessori and on my website at multilingualmontessori.org. You can find links to everything in the episode description.
Make sure you're subscribed to the Multilingual Montessori podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and review on whatever app you're listening through. It helps more people find the show, and I really do read every single one. Another wonderful way to support the podcast is to share it with someone who you think would enjoy it as well. Thanks again for listening, and see you next time.